You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me and your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're continuing our study here, and we're looking at chapter 6 this evening. And we're going to read verses 9 through 11. You'll find this on page 1031 of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. Hear the word of God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Last time we considered the book of Revelation, we found that the first four seals were broken by the lamb who was slain. These seals unleash the woes that are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The white rider of conquest, the red rider of bloodshed, the black rider of famine, and the pale rider of death. And this is a fourfold expression of judgment that was meted out by the Lord. They are severe judgments that plague a godless world during this interadvental period, the first advent, Jesus' coming. The second advent, Jesus coming again. And these judgments are universal and they are complete. And I believe this underscores the seriousness of sin. They glorify God's justice. They wreak havoc at the command of Christ. And therefore, we give thanks for the infinite wisdom of Jesus and his care for the church. Tonight, with the opening of the fifth seal, we learn more about the inner mysteries of heaven. The Apostle John has the privilege of seeing things that no human being has ever seen before. And this scene, I believe, is distinguished from the four seals because there is no living being who shouts, come. There are neither horses nor riders. He sees the heavenly altar and souls underneath. It's imagery that's drawn from the Old Testament tabernacle and the bronze altar of sacrifice. The lamb was slain, and these martyrs followed the example of their Lord. They were slain. The blood of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament was poured at the bottom of the altar, according to Leviticus 4, and therefore John sees these martyrs standing under the altar because they were slain. That's where their blood is. And they were martyred because of their confession of their allegiance to Christ. These believers had held fast to God's truth with their heart, and they had confessed that truth with their mouth. 
They testified to his absolute lordship and they shed their blood, or he shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And from what John describes, I think we're able to draw several important observations. The first of which is this. The souls of believers are at their death fully conscious and keenly aware. Notice it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain. Clearly, John was able to witness the souls martyred as saints in heaven. I have no idea how we could see bodiless souls, but that's another mystery for some other time. What we do know is that these souls aren't dead. They're very much alive. They're glorified saints who are petitioning God to avenge their unjust sufferings. And this proves that departed souls are awake, conscious, engaged in the affairs of what goes on here. They remember the past to which they allude by mentioning their blood. They seem to be conscious of the passage of time and history upon earth. For look what they say. How long will before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they realize that at present public justice has not yet been executed. They are mindful of the church militant. Their members are being oppressed, and the great cloud of witnesses is observing what goes on. And they look to the future as these martyred souls anticipate the final day of reckoning, because it says they were told to rest a little longer until the number of martyrs be complete. The number of martyrs was not completed by them, but it would increase with time. And the martyrs are also eagerly awaiting their adoption as sons, which we're told elsewhere is the redemption of the body. And of course, this disproves the whole idea of soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's the belief that at death, a soul sleeps until the resurrection. Those who hold this view think that the dead are not aware or conscious at all. It's sleep. And they misinterpret our Lord's metaphorical use of the word sleep, for example, in Luke chapter 8. Jesus said of Jairus' daughter, don't weep, she's not dead, she's sleeping. But sleeping is just a way to describe death because the body appears in death to be sleeping. And yet in death, the lungs don't breathe, the heart doesn't beat, the blood doesn't pump, the limbs don't move. There's no life in the body. It's dead. But there's life in departed souls. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, conscious. Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, conscious. So though a believer's body is destroyed, his soul or her soul survives and lives on. He remembers the past in heaven. He considers the present in heaven. And he looks forward to the future in heaven. He recalls and he recognizes those whom he loved and whom he left behind. And as Christians, therefore, you and I need not fear death nor those who threaten it. My friends, do not fear those who kill the body 
and after that have nothing more that they can do. For a believer, death is simply a means by which he or she may reach heaven. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you remember, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because that was the day of his death. And John was greatly comforted, I think, to see the safety and rest of souls that were under the altar. We're comforted, I think, in knowing that they're under the protection and custody of Christ, your loved ones who are there. So we need not grieve without hope at the gravesite of a loved one departed. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And it's true. There is much about death and that is unknown, much about it. But some things are clear. The souls of believers are living and they're joyful and we will see them again. And there is no shame in grieving. There are times to mourn. There are funerals to attend. But as Christians, we mourn with the hope of knowing that we will be reunited. That's the first observation. But then the second one is this, that the Christian faith is opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see that in this passage. It says those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. The souls John saw had been persecuted for their faithfulness to Christ. In word and deed, those believers had borne witness to the truth of the gospel. They had attended church weekly. They had been faithful in resisting temptations to sin and the lures to compromise. And so committed were they, apparently, to God's word in Christ that they were willing to die for it. Now, I don't know if I'd be willing but I'll tell you what, I pray that God gives me the grace in the day that I'm called to do it. This assumes that in this world, there will be, we will meet with opposition. And throughout history, there has been persistent hostility toward Christians. Jesus predicted some would think that they were doing good by killing believers. John 16, 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. So the opposition to the faith is something that every Christian should expect. Don't be surprised, brethren. It may take a variety of forms. It could be physical persecution or it could be verbal. It could be fiscal. It might even be relational, the cancel culture. Our experience will reflect and imitate that which Christ endured. A servant is not greater than his master, he told us. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if the master met with opposition, well, then should not his servants expect the same? You recall how Peter advised Christ, Lord, spare yourself. You're not going to the cross. And he was rebuked. To be disciples of Christ means to follow him. That's what a disciple is, a follower. The martyrs knew this. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know something, Christianity, despite the surface popularity it might enjoy in places, will never be popular because it calls for self-denial and self-sacrifice. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Some things are easy. Some of it is encouraging. Redemption has been accomplished. It's free. The terms of salvation are very simple so that a child can understand it, but the demands of discipleship are hard. It involves things that are difficult, like renouncing the world, denying the flesh, sacrificing yourself. And yet hard things, I think, are made easy when we see the purpose, which ultimately is heaven. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. But then third, the sufferings of a Christian were led to believe here are determined by the Lord himself. Notice it says the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So according to his wisdom, the number of martyrs has already been fixed. Isn't that interesting? None can be added to it, apparently. None can be taken away from it. It's fixed. When the full number of martyrs is reached, then comes the final vindication. And the Bible teaches that God ordained and made certain the number of his saints. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And you know something? Until the number of saints in general and martyrs in particular is complete, history is going to roll on. I don't know how long it's going to be but the number is fixed. And any delay in final judgment is not slackness or inability on the part of God. Peter teaches us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And of course, this implies, again, that the sufferings of Christians are carefully determined by the Lord. If the number of martyrs is fixed, then the number of trials must be fixed as well. This was true of Christ, for whom time and trials were divinely appointed. It says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John says that Jesus Christ was fully conscious of his Father's ultimate plan. And before the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. As it was with Christ, so is with all his followers whose sufferings are calculated. Your sufferings, mine. If you are afflicted, know that there is an end in sight because the time is fixed. God has a plan that can neither be hastened or delayed. It's certain. The Lord is at work. The ultimate and final destruction of evil is sure. The trials and sufferings are designed and sent by God to test our faith and purify our soul. 
And always remember that everything given by the Lord is given for our salvation. Isn't that what the Heidelberg one says? Warnings and encouragements, blessings and hardships, sufferings and sorrows, all of it serves our salvation. During our brief life, the years pass and death comes soon and eternity lasts long. It's long. So let's recognize the hand of God in our trials and draw comfort for the hope or from the hope of heaven. Fourth, the sufferings and deaths of Christians, as these martyrs imply, are by nature sacrificial. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain. The souls who are privileged to be under the altar enjoy the safety of God's fatherly care and keeping. The altar was a place to which the manslayer in the Old Testament ran when he was pursued by the avenger of blood. As he gripped those horns, the avenger dare not approach to exact vengeance while he's there. So the manslayer was safe and secure by virtue of God's sovereign command at the altar. And in like fashion, the departed souls are under the protection and the custody of the risen and exalted Christ. The persecutor can't reach him. The avenger dare not come close. And all the dangers of death are a thing of the past. And these souls, these martyrs in heaven are in perfect peace. Their association with the altar points to the sacrificial nature of their suffering. The Old Testament altar was a place of sacrifice and atonement where victims were slain. And for a Jew, the most sacred part of any sacrifice was, of course, the blood, because that's the life. And we're told in Leviticus 4, the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And so John sees these believers who had been slain, the same verb used of the lamb. And these have been sacrificed on earth in the same way as their Lord had been. And therefore, that's why their souls are at the base of the altar where the life blood is poured out as a sacrifice. And the idea of being a sacrifice to God was in the mind of the apostle Paul. He said to Timothy, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You know something, whenever a believer dies for Christ, it may look like a tragedy. I remember when Jim Elliott was martyred as a missionary, everybody said, what a waste. But every life lost in the name of Jesus Christ is an offering made to the glory of God. Fifth, this passage implies that all injustice will be avenged by God Almighty. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Saints are often cut short by violence. They're often cut down by the cruelty while persecutors often live long. Let's face it, that happens in this life. So they cry out, how long will evildoers be allowed to afflict the people of God? How long will God's name be dishonored by their unbelieving taunts? How long will divine justice go unsatisfied until the final reckoning? 
This is not a bitter cry for personal revenge. It's a cry for public justice. These glorified saints are now at rest, enjoying their eternal reward, and they know full well that retribution is certain and satisfaction is coming. They know it. And also that final judgment is a divine prerogative. It's at God's pleasure. Because we're told, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so these martyred souls... They love what God loves, and they hate what God hates. And their desires are in perfect harmony and agreement with those of God himself, and they're crying out for God's name to be vindicated. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? God's reputation is at stake. If he doesn't punish sin, he's viewed as unjust, arbitrary. J.I. Packer said believers rejoice when their God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest distressed when they see God flouted. You know as well as I do what you do when you hear somebody use the Lord's name in vain. You cringe. Good old Barnabas rejoiced when God's grace was displayed and King David wept when God's law was brazenly violated. These glorified souls never doubt the ultimate judgment of the wicked. They know it's coming. They're calling upon the Lord to display his holiness and his truth. They long for the glory of his name to be displayed before the universe. And their plea is language of expectation. They they want to see God vindicated. Jesus said, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. The whole creation itself groans as in pains of childbirth, as it waits for the end, and it's coming. When God brings evildoers to justice, the glory of his name is exhibited. And at the same time, their Christian testimony, which was scoffed at, will be defended. God will overturn the wrong verdict by openly acknowledging and acquitting every single believer. Acts 17, God has fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What comfort and encouragement to those who suffer and die unjustly. God knows their situation. He understands their plight. He'll vindicate his name. I remember recently reading the story of a poor woman in an African country. Her husband was slaughtered, and they poured acid in her eyes and her throat until she died because she was a Christian. Now she's at rest. Finally, this text implies that God will reward every Christian for the testimony born. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. In this world, the virtuous are not fully esteemed and the righteous are not rewarded. History is strewn with examples of injustice, discrimination, and wrongs, good men and women being denied position, respect, success, and honor, and even their lives. The sacrifice they made for the name of Christ will not go unnoticed and it will never be overlooked. 
He promises his followers that no forfeiture in his name will ever be forgotten. There is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, brothers and sisters, and in the age to come eternal life. So whatever we've sacrificed for Christ, it will be made up especially in the world to come. In this life, the graces and the comforts of the Spirit compensate for the losses that we incur. And in the life to come, the glorious gift of eternal life will make up for all of it. It'll be a blip. So the day is coming when every believer will be clothed in the white robe of purity and triumph. John didn't see souls here that were poor and naked and unkempt and lacking in comforts, did he? He beheld here blessed souls who were clothed in white robes enjoying their reward. The martyrs may appear to have been defeated by their enemies, but actually they gained the victory. And the same is true for every Christian who daily denies himself and who dies to sin for the glory of Christ. George Ladd puts it well, every disciple of Jesus is in essence a martyr. And John has in view all believers who have so suffered. You die daily. Every Christian suffers for one reason or another, to one degree or another. And our fellow believers who've gone before and died in the faith are now before the throne. Rest assured, they've inherited eternal life and the radiant presence of the glorified Christ. And to seasick, weather-beaten travelers in a fallen world, I think this is a welcome truth. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your servant John, you've revealed to us some of the mysteries of heaven and how encouraging is it for us to know that that great cloud of witnesses is not ignorant of what goes on here. And they rejoice over one sinner who repents. We thank you for these precious truths and ask that you'll help us to keep them in mind as we make our way through this wilderness of a world. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose blood we have the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.